Good morning. I saw Marsha this morning and I said, oh gosh, I meant to email you and say there was a particular song I wanted to do um, called All Who Are Thirsty and I forgot to, forgot to email and she said, we're doing it. And I said, I just love the Holy Spirit and the way he works. Uh, thank you for leading us in worship. And so lovely to have two songs that are straight out of this section in scripture. Um, it's a joyful passage. Um, so did you feel it last week? The seismic shift. It's a story we know well, right? God, God's plan for salvation for the world comes in the form of a suffering servant. But did you get a new perspective on it, seeing it in Isaiah? I was sort of wowed um, in a way I haven't been before. Because when you think about it, I mean, this is such a well-known story to us, right? But you think about it, 700 years before this, like, who could ever, ever conceive that this was God's plan? Isaiah was given the words to prophesy about the suffering Messiah. It's the seismic shift of the universe that we've been waiting for. Everything has shifted. Everything has changed in this proclamation of the servant song in Isaiah 49 through 53, which Carmen taught on last week. What Israel, what we could not do for ourselves, God has come and done on our behalf. The breach that we created in our sinfulness, wicked, wayward ways between us and God, that we could not find a way across. We could not be good enough. We could not obey the commandments enough. Our hearts again and again turn us away from God. God has done it. He has made the way that we could turn toward him. And so Isaiah 53, 5 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Listen to these words again. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. I'm going to read that again with Jesus Christ in it. I love how Carmen read that last week. But Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus Christ was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Jesus. And by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. Isaiah sees this vision of the coming suffering servant Messiah. And he sees how it shakes the very foundations of the cosmos. The work that had been done in the fall has been undone. There is a way now. Death has been overcome. Sin has been dealt with once and for all. There is a way for us to commune with God now through Christ. Now, to be sure, the revelation in God's Son, Jesus Christ, to make this reconciliation possible will not take place for another 700 years. But nevertheless, the revelation is complete. What other response can you have to that but to sing? Right? And that is immediately where Isaiah turns in Isaiah 54, 1. The first words out of his mouth. Sing. Sing. In chapters 49 through 52, God's promise to restore his people to himself through the servant has been unveiled. And so now... In chapters 
54 and 55, it's a response, a song of praise in response. The anticipation as we get the unfolding in those chapters of what is taking place here changes to celebration and invitation. That is how I would categorize, uh, characterize these chapters, 54 as celebration and 55 as invitation. I love how one commentary characterized these chapters. It said, in reality, Isaiah 54 and 55 forms two parts of a single whole. Chapter 54 is a love song by God to Zion, his estranged bride, telling her all the things he's going to do in restoring her. Chapter 55 is the invitation proper. Calling, listen to this, calling on the bride not to miss through unbelief what is hers. And then it says this, together they constitute one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in the entire Bible. And I hope you felt that as you sat with it this week. I hope you had a chance. If nothing else, if your study guide is just like so overwhelming you that you don't even pick it up anymore, (laughs) which I confess sometimes is where I'm at, just sit with the words of scripture. And I hope breaking it up, giving you like these sections, you were able to sit with the beauty of these words. And if you haven't, it's not too late. So first, celebration. Isaiah calls us to sing in 54.1, but who does he invite to sing? He gives us two images here in this section, verses 1 through 10. First is an image of the disgraced, a disgraced woman. And he has three sort of ways he speaks of this disgraced woman. And then there's this image of the ruined city. So first, the first 10 verses, the image of a disgraced woman. He speaks of Israel in three ways, as a barren, the barren one, the widow, and the divorced one. All of these would have been a place of disgrace, of vulnerability, of outcast status for a woman during that time. And to each of these positions and places, God promises restoration and hope. So first, barrenness. In verses 1 through 3, Isaiah invites the barren one who did not bear to break forth into singing and cry aloud because God is bringing unexpected abundance, so much so that they will have to enlarge their tent, right? Stretch out the boundaries of their home. They're going to have to do a little remodel. Well, a big remodel, right? Like break out the back half, you know, build on this massive addition because they will have more descendants than they can account for. Now, barrenness is something that's been a part of God's people's story from the very beginning, right? The matriarchs of the faith, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, were all barren, Hannah. But here, God is speaking to Israel as the barren one, but their barrenness is because of its failure to live as God's people, who he's called them to be. Israel has failed to bear the fruit that God hoped for, the fruit of faithfulness, and justice, and above all, to be a witness to the nations. They've been barren. They have not produced, given birth to these fruits that God has desired for them. So God tells Israel to rejoice because you know what? You have been barren, but you will be barren no more because God in Christ, through the covenant promises that he fulfills, it has now been extended to everyone. And so Israel, and ultimately the church, 
This is a proclamation over us to become this growing family that is too numerous to count. Right? The vision that God gave Abraham, count the stars. See if you can. I dare you. Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the heaven. And that has taken place through Christ extending, opening the invitation to all. So then, there's this imagery of a widow. Isaiah speaks of the reproach of the widow in verses 4 and 5. Remember the story of Naomi? Life as a widow was a bitter one, with no place of security or protection. Do you remember she wants to change her name? Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me what? Mara Bitter. This is a bitter life, right? God says, you who have just suffered disgrace and being left alone and vulnerable, I, your maker, listen to this, I, your maker, will be your husband. Again, we recall these words that uh, Isaiah spoke in, um, is it Isaiah 53, when he says these words, you are precious and honored in my sight and I love you. This word love, that's the love of a passionate lover, husband, right? God claims that here. I, your maker, will be your husband. And then listen to this list of names attributed here to God. Maker, Lord of hosts. This is the host's of heaven, right? The message translates it, God of the angel armies. I mean, just imagine being commander and head of that kind of host and uh, armies of angels, right? Then the Holy One of Israel and your Redeemer. What more security could you ask for, could be offered than being married to the one who holds these titles? and could provide this kind of security and protection. And then there's this image of a disgraced woman as the one who is divorced in verses 6 and 8. This is perhaps one of the more devastating places to be as a woman in this time. You're rejected, and you have no place, no home, no male person in your life to give you the protection you need, but you also have the disgrace of being rejected by that, by a man. And Isaiah names the truth that God is in fact the one who divorced her. God says he is the one who deserted her, hid his face from her. It's as if in this place here, Isaiah names and acknowledges the shame and painful experience of the exile that they are in. A result of their unfaithfulness and sinfulness, God allowed the exile to occur, but it was only for a brief moment. God says that he rejected him, but his anger was for a moment. But then he says this, but my compassion is everlasting. God has found a way to bring us back to himself. And then God reinforces these promises of love with this statement about an everlasting love in verses 9 and 10. And he compares it to the days of Noah, right? Judgment has to occur to uphold who God is, right? We don't want wickedness to actually go unpunished in this world. We really don't. It would be a horrendous world if it went unpunished, right? 
But then, even as God swore to Noah, after that punishment, to never destroy the world again, God says, I am making the promise that I will not be angry with you or rebuke you again. Why can he make that promise? Because in Christ, he has taken on our punishment once and for all. It has been dealt with. It is done, right? The words of Christ on the cross. It is finished. You are rejected no more. You are abandoned no more. You are alone in your sin no more. Never again will Christ's steadfast love feel like there's a gap that we have to cross. It will never depart from us. So this is the same truth. I was thinking about this that Paul proclaims in Romans 8, right? This verse we know so well. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Why? Because of Christ Jesus. Isaiah points to that truth here. In the atoning death of the servant, all of God's covenant promises that we just could not hold to, we kept breaking that covenant, we could not obey the commandments as we should, all those covenant promises now find their fulfillment in this new covenant of peace. This word covenant is really important in these chapters. A reminder that God has fulfilled this covenant that he made with us that we just could not hold to. He is holding us to it. All has been forgiven and atoned for. Because of Christ, not only will God's steadfast love not depart from us, but God's covenant of peace. Let me see if I can find where that is here. Oh, I'm in 53. Thank you. But my steadfast love shall not... Call it out. Help the teacher find her way. (laughs) But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. This is this word shalom. It means so much more than peace as an absence of conflict. This word shalom is full. It's it's such a weighty word in the Old Testament and we we miss it by translating it with peace. It means wholeness, well-being, the sense of all is well. That is the covenant of peace, of wellness, of wholeness that will not be removed, says the God, says the Lord who has compassion on you. We now have a lasting, secure peace. Right? Back into Romans, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And peace is this word that we read in 53, right? The punishment that brought us peace was taken on by him. Wow. When you look at this place of utter disgrace, just being at the the edge of any place of communion, protection, security. That's the picture that Isaiah is painting here in these images of this disgraced woman. And God says, I gather you in. I will be your shelter, your husband, your protection. My love shall never depart from you again. He gives us this vision, right, of our place now with God. 
And then moving from this image of disgraced women, Isaiah moves to the image of a ruined city restored. Like, if you remember back in Isaiah, what happens is part of the punishment that occurs. It's not just exile, right? But it's destruction of Jerusalem, right? It's wild things growing and beasts and animals taking over, right? Thorns and briars growing up. This place that's uninhabitable. Okay, so get that image in your head. He even uses these words, speaking to the afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. And then he says, the people of God will be restored like a rebuilt city with the finest materials. I know Bev loved this section, and I feel like she should be up here talking about this right now. She could speak much more eloquently and thoroughly on the gems used here and their meaning. But listen to this. I mean, like, can you even picture a city being built like this? Lay your foundations with sapphires. Your pinnacles of agite. Gates of carbuncle. I don't even know what that is. But I'm sure it's beautiful. (laughs) I should have looked that one up. Listen to this. In all your wall of precious stone. Like, there is no city in the world built like this. No matter how fantastic They have been created to this point in human history. Nothing is going to compare with the vision of what God is going to do to rebuild Jerusalem. There's a resonance here, and if you did do your study, there was um, reference to Revelation 21, where Jerusalem is rebuilt with these stones. I think it mentions even more there, right? In this context of the new heaven and the new earth that God establishes. Friends, we cannot... Describe Words cannot describe the exquisite beauty of life when God comes again and establishes his kingdom. And then it culminates in verses 13 and 14 where God describes the communion and the security and peace that, we, that he will establish. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace. Here it is again. Shalom of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. Can you imagine a world where there is no fear that comes up in us? And from terror it shall not come near you. It goes on to speak of this weapon. There's no weapon, no power that can come against us that can stand now through the revelation of the suffering servant, now that that revelation has been unleashed. I loved what my ESV um, study Bible footnote said about verse uh, 5417, this no weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed or shall stand or prevail. It said, God will protect his people and defeat every enemy no matter how powerful. Do you have the same footnote? (laughs) Gail's back there shaking her head. (laughs) God will protect his people and defeat every enemy, no matter how powerful. Whatever you feel you're up against in your life, whatever enemies, attacks, places of despair, they can't hold their weight in the ring with God. With this assurance, Isaiah ends 54 with these words to us. This vision, he's painting this vision of what life with God restored through the suffering servant, reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. 
He paints this vision that he tells us to sing about. Then he says this, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, those who trust. I'm going to, I'm going to translate that as those who trust in God through Christ. These are the promises we now have in Christ, the vision of what is and what is to come. And then in Isaiah 55, if that's not a lot, you get to keep going. So this vision of what God has accomplished through his servant has been set before us. Isaiah 55 invites us to enter into that vision. It's an invitation to embrace this reality. From the announcement that all is forgiven, we are invited to experience that forgiveness. From the declaration that we are the bride of Christ, we are invited to come to the wedding feast and partake. Everything has been done. The table is set. And so Isaiah 55 invites us to come. The tone here is earnest. There are no less than 12 imperative verbs, command verbs in the Greek in three verses. Three verses, imperatives. Listen to them. Come. 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 Buy. Eat. Come. Buy. Listen carefully. Eat. Delight. Incline. Hear. Isaiah 54 has proclaimed the bride is restored, the city is rebuilt. How utterly tragic it would be if those for whom all this has been done for fail to enter into it. This is a plea. It's an invitation, but there's a there's a yearning, a plea. You must come. And that's the truth of the gospel, isn't it? All that can exclude you is your insisting that you have other places you would rather be. Like Jesus' parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, it is simply the unwillingness to come, the distraction of having other things to do that leaves you missing out on the feast. As I sat with this, I realized Isaiah 55 gives us this um, contrast of appearance Versus reality, right? It's the contrast of the things that appear to be bread, but are not, in fact, bread. The appearance of things that have the appearance of sustenance or security, but actually don't provide this. And Isaiah is inviting us to see things as they really are, to see reality. Right? What Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Real, rich, abundant food. So much in our life that we think we need, that we strive for as essential to our well-being and wholeness, in fact, does not bring wellness and wholeness. It does not satisfy. I mean, we could come up in your groups. Maybe you can talk about this because we all have our own personal things where we kind of want to root ourselves, seek this place of security, satisfaction. I mean, I can name some here, right? Money, financial security, success, approval, this good, comfortable life, health, relationships, status, control, plans and expectations for my life. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? 
and your labor for that which does not satisfy? This question of self-introspection and deep digging. What are those things that you spend your money and your labor, your time and energy on to secure your life? There are many things we can grasp after. And really, I mean, the world, this is the messaging we receive. This is what you need to be whole. This is what you need to feel loved. Living in a world with social media where like and like buttons and heart buttons now become our form of communication with each other, right? That is reorienting our very psyche and how we perceive ourselves and how we're valued. All these things that we grasp after for security and abundance, they in fact do nothing of the sort. And Isaiah is inviting us to turn from what is only an appearance to what is reality. Come from hunger to real satisfying food. From thirst to water. From sadness to joy. From death to life. Listen to this plea. Hear that your soul may live. This is true life. It's abundance without cost as opposed to this profitless striving that we are doing all the time. All we must do is accept what has already been paid for us. What has already been accomplished and is freely offered. And here again we see the broad vision that Isaiah communicates. This invitation is not just for the people of God, Israel, but it's an everlasting covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ that nations who did not know will now run to Israel who have this source of true life. Again, this key word in these chapters surface, I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. But behold, I made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Behold, you shall call a nation you did not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. He's speaking here of how this new covenant in Christ has burst open the doors wide for all to come in. I wrote next to that, the verse 5, Gentiles. Right? This is who he's, this is Paul's message in the New Testament. The Gentiles are included, all nations now. This covenant is for all, not just those in Israel, but it's for all who thirst and come and drink from her waters. Thirst and hunger is your only requirement. And that's reassuring, because I sure am thirsty and I sure am hungry. That's all I have. I don't know why I'm getting emotional on that one. (laughs) Right? Don't you sometimes just feel that deep thirst and hunger? God satisfies that. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. So this beautiful invitation, earnest as it is, beautiful invitation, in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah then, again, uh, entreats us, his imperatives again, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
Ultimately, it's only in repentance and a recognition that we are not God, that we actually don't know what's best for our lives, that our ways are in fact usually marked by self-interest and injustice and wickedness. Will the door be open to the banquet hall where the table is set? A table that is overflowing with compassion and mercy and pardon, the love of God. It's a call to faith here in verse 6. Even when we don't understand the ways of God in our lives. right? This I, I didn't know in this whole section now, this verse, um, verses 8 and 9. I know these verses well. <laughs> I've said them to myself a lot. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Just as no one could have guessed that where God would go with saving Israel and the world would be a suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, no one could have guessed that, right? The suffering servant, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Paul calls it the foolishness of God, which shames the wise. Just as we could not have conceived of that, this passage in Isaiah invites us to not just conceive that we don't, that we not only don't know how best to save ourselves, but even in our walk of faith, we often don't understand, we don't see enough to make the call about what should or should not happen about what is good or best for our lives. This passage helps us in those moments of faith crisis where our life experience can challenge what we know about God, where we are confronted with the question here. Isaiah confronts us with these questions. Do you trust God? Do you trust his intentions to be good? Can you trust it? Can you not only trust it, but can you desire God's thoughts and ways above your own? Ultimately, we must simply surrender our wisdom to his, our understanding to his. It's a call to trust that God is good and that he knows what he is doing to ensure that our soul may live. We exercise faith. And we let understanding come later, our own understanding come later. Trusting that what God says and does is reliable. So we have in verses 10 and 11 this this understanding, this uh, picture he paints that we trust that God's promises given in his word will not come back as empty promises. It will not return void, but will accomplish the purposes for which he has sent them. Then Isaiah 55 ends with this picture that we um, we spun of. You shall go out with joy. It's this picture of returning in joy and peace where uh, not only do human beings rejoice, but the trees clap their hands. Uh, Beth said she heard a little bit of uh, tree clapping this morning. Um, and the mountains and hills rejoice. Have you heard the trees clapping before with their leaves? Right? So this is speaking not just of the return of the exiles in Babylon. That is in part what the picture is here, this immediate circumstance to which Isaiah is speaking to the people of God. But ultimately it speaks to the rejoicing of all creation in God's ultimate redemption that he will bring to pass one day. It's this triumphant vision of God's grace and love and redemption 
which Paul speaks of in Romans 8.21, where he says creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. All of creation is, has been affected and weighed down by sin. So it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Having laid out this vision, we are offered this simple invitation. Come. I'd like to close with reading Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3a over you. It's your verses for the week. I apologize for the small print, but there are a lot of words to get on the page. (laughs) If you want to, close your eyes. Drink this in. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And she who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live.